Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. We're approaching the midway point of the 2021 Six Nations and as many would have predicted, favourites France lead the standing with two wins from two. What's been less predictable is that Wales are the only other unbeaten side in the competition. Can they make it three out of three when they play England in Cardiff this weekend? Or will Eddie Jones reignite his side and their title challenge with an away win? Scotland have been involved in two of the most entertaining games of the competition so far. And after throwing away a win to Wales last time out, they are heading to Paris to take on France, needing a win to keep their own title aspirations alive. Tournament to get so far for Ireland, who've suffered consecutive defeats for the first ever time in the Six Nations. They'll be hoping to get back on track, or we should do against Italy, um, who are once again rooted to the bottom of the table. But we're still no closer to finding out what's happening with the British and Irish Lions this summer. There are conflicting reports over where the tour should go. Could it be held over here? Could it be held in Australia? We'll be speaking to the Telegraph's chief rugby correspondent, Gavin Mayers, who has written that the prospect of playing in Australia with past crowds is still very much on the table. And we'll be speaking to Eamon Ashton-Atkinson, the director of the documentary based on the world's first gay rugby team, the King's Cross Steelers, who are celebrating their 25th anniversary this year. And a good bunch of lads they are. I was down there several years ago. We'll be telling. It'll be interesting. And to talk through all this is... Uh, the former England centre, who seems to be sitting in a shadow, um, <laughs> Tom May. Hello, Tom. How are we doing? Well, why don't we start with England? One win, one loss so far. Lots of criticism coming their way. Uh, what have you made of the opening two rounds for them? Listen, I, I think that first game was a was a shock for every English fan, um, and certainly the the Scottish. You know, they, they, they performed brilliantly that day. Um, what was most alarming from an English perspective was missed opportunities I think when when overlaps when numbers presented themselves uh, the opportunities weren't taken um, and there wasn't really any moment in the game whereby you thought Eddie Jones's men were really trying to stretch the defence the Scottish defence in any way um, against Italy look I think Italy are, are struggling at the moment and it's a very difficult uh, <laughs> You go in. You go into a game against them. You're supposed to beat them by 40, 50 points, and if you don't, then there's a there's a sort of question mark raised about your performance. Even still, I think England was not not up to scratch. Um, I think they were below par. I think there were some individual performances that were again 
um, probably not of a level that we're used to. Um, and I think they are, they look off the pace. That said, um, I still think they've got a good opportunity going down to Cardiff this weekend. Well, one of the players who's looked out of sorts and short of his best is Owen Farrell. Ian McGeeker has written the Telegraph that he's not part of the problem, but part of the solution. Pretty interesting take. I mean, I very much respect uh, Geeks' opinion on players. He's a very astute man. He's played centre and fly half. So part of the problem or the solution? Uh, I think it's a mixture of the two. And that's not me sitting on the fence. That's, that's me saying uh, this is clearly a player that is rusty. Um, and I think that comes across in... When you're rusty as a as a as a top professional um, in the Premiership, let alone playing in, in the in international level Six Nations, you're going to be less battle hardened, so you're not physically as ready. But I also think that that is reflected in decision making. And for a guy that generally makes very very good decisions on the ball and around the pitch when managing his team, I think he's he's made some uncharacteristically poor decisions with ball in hand. Um, now, whether that's a game plan that's being stuck to, to, to down to the T or whether it's, uh, whether it's Owen Farrell being out of sorts, I think you can also probably point to Billy Vanapola not having the influence that he's previously had. Well, we're just going to uh, talk about Saracen's contingent. Uh, do you buy into the narrative that they've suffered from lack of game time? 100%. 100%. I think, I think it's a really bad thing for English rugby right now that Saracens find themselves in the championship because A, well, they've had a when the championship isn't even going. Exactly. They've had such a long layoff and now, you know, arguably they'll have, they'll have some rugby to play, but I mean, it's, it's nowhere, nowhere near going to be the intensity that uh, they're used to, whether that be in Europe or the premiership. And I think that has a reflection on the level of performance that we see at international level. I think Marotoje is probably one of the only guys that's, that's put his hand up and has played, uh, fairly well. Um, well. The thing is, if you say it's a lack of game time and you are partially muted, how do you explain it to OG? Because surely he would also look undercooked. Yeah, but out of those out of those guys that are playing for Saris, he's almost the anomaly, isn't he? Um, and and you know, I don't think I don't think Elliot Daly's been anywhere near uh, what we'd expect from him. And I think no. defensively, he's been poor yeah. at times. Um, you expect your fullback. Are you still to be... convinced he should be playing fullback? Because I'm not. No, I think. Look, uh, I think he's been given more than enough opportunity to uh, stake a claim for that shirt. I think Anthony Watson is the is the is the best fullback that we could probably put in that position. Now, some people are already saying Max Malins will be bringing you know real heat to whoever is in that 15 shirt. Um, I just think Anthony Watson, with his ability to to, to, to receive the ball deep. In more space, he has he has the physical attributes to try and open up defences, and that's something that I think spark can spark England into life. Um, whereas at the moment they're trying to sort of self-generate that. Well, I said a few weeks ago that uh, England needed a, uh, an injection of young talent, specifically uh, both half-back positions, just in order to freshen things up as options and to keep pressure on the incumbents. Because it seems to me at the moment. They may not feel this, but when it's Ford, Farrell or Farrell, Ford or, you know, these combinations, they're pretty much guaranteed to be there. And that can't, that can't be good, especially if the, the form isn't good. And I, 
you know, you see Marcus Smith and so on, you see other people there, whether it's Smith or someone else. I don't see you're running out of time to blood these players, but you know, if they are going to feature at all, you want to give them a, a, in the in the World Cup, and that's what everything's building to, really. You need to give them as much squad time and game time as you can. I think Marcus Smith is is probably the only option that England have to fall back on. And but that would be taking that would be going down a completely different path to what they've been used to so far. Uh, and there are arguments for that. Um what if you I, get to a stage where these players because you, you know this, it's only when you look back and you've retired that you that you understand probably you dipped a year, 18 months before you retired in absolute performance. I mean, you, your fitness scores are fine, but you still, you think to yourself, well, I wasn't just sharp enough. I, you know, I, and, and I, I certainly thought about 95. Um, and uh, what if you get to that stage and you haven't got the options and you're wondering, panicking then, thinking, well, can I bring someone in who's got virtually no, no, no game, England international game time at all? Yeah, and maybe that game last week was, uh, sorry, against the Italians, was the opportunity to give someone like Marcus Smith an opportunity. Uh, um, Because if things are going that badly wrong, which I just can't see how they would, um, then you can revert to type and bring some more experienced players on. That said, I I do say England perform better when they have both Ford and Farrell. Farrell is a, as an individual decision maker, when he doesn't have, hasn't had the game time that he's previously had at a level that he's previously had, has, has been shown to be short. And I don't, you know, I think it was tough on Ollie Lawrence, but I don't think he would have been providing the outlet that, that Owen Farrell is used to or has been used to over time with George Ford. The thing is at this time is that, you know, we all know what the, the, that axis brings and, and so on. We don't know what the um, Lawrence axis, and, uh, because he hasn't been given um, the right ball at the right time. He's been given some game time, but not enough ball. And I previously said, you know, that George Ford was a different player to Owen Farrell, but it seems to me in the last several internationals that this kicking on the front foot and, you know, Eddie Jones' statistic that teams will kick more win games has been so thoroughly inculcated and absorbed that Ford does not even when given the opportunity to play like he used to when he was flat on the game line, and therefore was a differentiation. To me, you're seeing two players carrying out the same game plan, depending on you know whether one is better than, you know, the, which or that does it enough, but they're not. But what you had before does not seem to be there or certainly isn't appearing on the pitch. No, and, and maybe what Eddie Jones is probably saying is when the All Blacks are at their best, they kicked far more ball than anyone else but on the flip side of that they had one of the most devastating counter-attacks in world rugby and they made good decision when good decisions when they were presented with uh, a poor kick or a poor kick chase and I don't, to kick well as well <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly um, but I don't think at the moment our counter-attacking game it's is non-existent no exactly and it's not good enough to try and to then rely on on a kicking game to, to go and grind out a win because it it, ultimately, you, you don't do anything. I think coming back to your point about halfbacks, nine is an area that really we can look to try and make a change. Look, Ben Youngs has been a brilliant servant to English rugby, but now probably we need to start seeing what's underneath him. Um, yeah. Dan Robson, I think, played well when he came on. 
um, added life. Harry Randall's the guy that everyone wants to have a look at, isn't it? Now, he, I think he's injured this week. So, um, uh, so in come out Alex Mitchell from the Saints. Now, former Northampton player, I'd love to see him get a, get more of a shot, but I just don't think he's as sharp as Harry Randall is at the moment or Dan Robson. Um, well, Eddie Jones said he's heading to the Wales game um, and they'll be focusing mainly on the set-piece and attack. Well, obviously, set-piece needs to be bottomed out. Um, the Welsh set-piece has rocked at times. Both of them have rocked at times. Um, specifically in attack, uh, what do England need to do to make sure they are more potent? I think they need to... It's not about completely ripping up the playbook and saying, right, we need to I we need to reinvent our, 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 our attack and, and completely regenerate ourselves as a team. You and I both know rugby, in its simplest terms, is pretty simple. Get on the front foot, and it makes it far easier for for the likes of um, for the likes of uh, Elliot Daly, Anthony Watson, Johnny May on the wing. Um, however, I think at the moment their set plays and their phase plays are too simple to defend. Yeah. So therefore, their big ball carriers, are, you know, what do you teach many uh, junior rugby players? Run into branches, not tree trunks. And at the moment, we're just running flat out into people without trying to vary that point of attack. So we're, so we're creating little angles to run into. Tom, what I don't understand is, in the room to the World Cup and when they played well in the World Cup, they had a very sophisticated forward carrying operation where with three, you know, two, three, two, three spots, man going in, last minute decision, defenders not knowing whether he's going to belt into them, whether he's going to go pop outside, inside, or do the loop round the back. You know, Sinclair, Makov and Apollo were very good at that. I've not seen any of that, any of it in the last few games. No, and that and that's my point. That's that's where England were getting right over the game line. If you've got someone like Carl Sinclair charging onto the ball, but has the ability to see where the space is better for someone else. And then you're, even if it's a meter past the gain line in the middle of the field, that probably creates four or five meters of space out on the width. And the difference is, is vast from when the ball then gets shipped out wide. And it's like, see, what I don't understand is I could understand and forgive if they were trying to replicate that and it was, it just wasn't going well, you know, the timing's off and all that. But I don't see them even, even, Approaching it, I don't. I, sometimes I don't even see a pod of three going in together. No. So no. If, so if removing that, sometimes we're getting isolated ball carriers, yeah. which is even worse because then we get slow ball. And I think I think that's one area that I'd love to see England try and just vary the angles at which people are running into those uh, holes or into the defence because we all know that international defences now are so watertight. You have to try and make the smallest margins count. And also, when they were posing all these problems with Canada, they did have Manu, which is a big thing. Yeah. But Johnny May inside, Jack Noel uh, as an inside option, Winger's there. They're really good carriers. You don't have to be big. You just have to be elusive. You know, and they were involved. I haven't seen any of that either. Uh, he's probably not a name that has been mentioned during the Six Nations for obvious reasons in that he's not there. But Jack Noel, I think, is gold dust to Eddie Jones's team or squad. Because he never gets tackled by the first bloke. He always skips around the first one, probably drags two or three with him. And that creates more space. And then if, if then you're getting a pot of three that's charging onto the ball in those wider channels, then it has a devastating effect. Um, and I don't see, 
I don't see what we're being provided. For. You know, just Johnny May, who's been one of our outstanding performers over the past couple of seasons, three, even more. It, he's certainly no win. You know, his performance was it was it against Scotland or was it Italy, where he was, he just made mistakes. Scotland, uh, yeah, it just we haven't seen him make mistakes like that. Uh, well, let's go on to the Wales game specifically. The two out of two um, have to be lucky to to do that, or um, is it completely warranted? I mean, the, well, they're lucky they played against fourteen men. There, but... Yeah, they're lucky they played against fourteen men twice. <laughs> uh, so I think that's the first thing. Um, Listen, I think Scotland were within the fingertips of, of, of winning that, weren't they? A save from uh, Owen Watkin. Well, if uh, you take the right one at the right time, I think they'd have had a, a lead, which even you know, even a very resilient Welsh team wouldn't have come back from. Yeah, and and you know, even in the dying seconds, I think I think it was Van der Merwe running down that right hand touchline yeah. that that was tap tackled. Um, I think England have got a good chance to win down there. I think I think Wales. Um, are there any differences that that we see to what how they are as a team? I don't. I, I, th- I think I think they've got players coming back. I, I think they've got what they've always had. They've had the dogged stuff, a couple of individual bits of brilliance by Zamit and other players. Um, but to me, they yeah. are not um, back to where they were prior to this disaster. The disaster year they've had, if they've stepped up from that. But they're not near the heights of, you know, say, eighteen months previous. No, and I think they're they're relying on moments of brilliance from their top players to to get them out of trouble, uh, which I don't think for someone like Pivac is it. It's not something you really want to be relying on as an international yeah. side. A lot, there's going to be a lot of talk. Obviously, May against uh, Reese Zamit, uh, two Gloucester wings. Um, she just run it all on a hundred meter race. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone would pay to see that. That would be, uh, you know, an opportunity to see those two in full flight. Is uh... what England need to do with Reese Zamit is test him under the high ball properly. Yeah. Um, we, look, he, he may pass the test. If he does, fantastic for him. Um, but I suspect it's not what he wants to do. Tom, you're in Ireland. You saw them. What was their most impressive feature, do you think? They were outstanding for the first 30 minutes. They stuck to their game plan. They'd worked out that if they kicked on two of the shortest players on the on the pitch in Doulin Vier, they might get some change. And and their the pressure they put on uh the French was was brilliant. Um I think what we saw from the French was them okay, they might have been knocked onto the ropes, but but actually you you can't you can't go to sleep with this lot for any moment at any yeah. point because they 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 can attack into space. I think it was Penno who made a breakdown that down the right, four or five offloads, and it was and it was in the corner. It's well, not uh, bad if you got Teddy Toma. Yeah, <laughs> drop him after two tries. But Dupont, Dupont, playing. You could make a very reasonable argument from uh, being the form player uh, in the world at the moment. But I think he's got COVID, hasn't he? Yeah, and uh, there was—I think there was a release this morning. So that uh, this isn't all of the names, by the way. It's Dupont, Vier, Doulin, Marchand, Hawass, Olivon, Cyril Bay, and Taufi Fanua have all been ruled out of this weekend's game. And and, and even more. even that, Bill, when you saw what the um, what did you call them? Not call them subs still, like I'm old. You know, finishers, <laughs> game changers, uh, whatever. Um, we saw in the Autumn Nations Cup that the 
people who come in are very handy as well. Yeah, I think, look, um, French rugby, probably around the time that I was over there and, and for a few years after, was rightly, um, I guess, uh, attacked for not having enough French players in key positions. Yeah. I think, off, certainly. yeah, what they have now in, is, is out of this world. You know, they've got three outstanding players um, to, to, that can lead that team from the front at any point. Um, you know, Baptiste Serrat does not even get a sniff of getting that shirt if, if Dupont is starting and, and he's a world-class in his, in his own right. Um, I think what we've seen is how uh, a performance pathway from age-grade rugby to, um, to senior-level rugby, how it works and how it can work brilliantly. Well, uh, we've, we've always said this about the French. You've always had things. And one of the most difficult questions for them, which is that the selection was just ridiculously poor. And this right. time, with this set, and I know it's been planned before that with the 120s and whatever, they've got a consistent approach and it shows it works. Yeah, and, I, you know, they, they give enough game time. So, you know, take fly half as a, as a, as a point. Um, they, they've got enough game time in those players that means that they can actually, they can lose two and still have the, the third choice. Um, and this is my point about Marcus Smith or and or Harry Randall or whatever, you know. If you don't play there, you're suddenly forced to throw them in with no game time. It's unfair on them as well, all this yeah. expectation. You know, and um, Intermatch, let's face it, Intermatch's first dozen games, they weren't, they weren't stellar. No. You know, but he came through and he was given time and now you see, oh, right there. I think... Um, still very young. I, th- I think it was really interesting how how Ireland tried to look. They did a pretty good job on Dupont. He he managed to get away once in the in the final stages of the of the second half. Um, now that has been key to any side keeping France quiet is you keep him quiet. Um, but look, I think Scotland now have an unbelievable opportunity. Yes, they do. Um, and I think every other side, possibly England included, will be will be rubbing their hands together thinking, come on, can you do some other teams a favour? Well, this is the point, isn't it? Because I said, more to come from the Scotland side after the Calcutta Cup win, can't get better. But this is the point, it's always been the point of Scotland for so many years. I've had Scottish fans coming on saying, managed to wrestle defeat out of the jaws of victory. <laughs> but it's because they do not score when they need to. And that includes not just converting the chances, and they've got creative players and they're creating more and more. It includes making the right decisions as to kick or not kick. And people get this wrong all the time. If you don't go for goal, you better bloody well score. Yeah. I, because I, the, I sometimes think, I know they know this, but it doesn't seem to go into their heads. The scoreboard pressure, they should, they should look at this the way that, why would I feel? If they took another three, God, that'd be... Uh, then another three points that's made just two converted tries and so on and so on and so on the psychological effect you can't it's not just on the scoreboard you think well yeah these two converted tries it's what it does to the opposition be, they have to be uh, less cautious because everyone's reckless and if you're on form you can do that Adam Hastings is back in the squad spoke to him uh, Norton series he says he could work alongside Finn Russell in a forward foul type way uh, what do you think? I think it would create them more options out wide um, and would add another dimension to their attack. Because um, their back three is good, isn't it? It's very good. I mean, if you can get a piece of human meat travelling as quickly as 
Duan van der Merwe travels, then then into space, you're you're onto something. And I think Stuart Hogg, you know, just down this world at the moment. Yeah, he's he's been he's been outstanding. Um, just just back to your point, though, I've got a lot of Scottish friends. Um, probably, I haven't. <laughs> well, I might not after what I'm about to say. <laughs> but I, I, I honestly, I, that final whistle against England, I must have had about eight texts within 45 seconds. Um, and you can understand the elation of having having beaten England, at, um, having not done for so for so long. Thirty eight years. Yeah. Yes. But. You have to be able to to back that up, and it always seems to me when when Scotland think they're on the verge of doing yes, something brilliant, yes, yes. there's a there's a there's a clamour, there's this fervour about how they're performing, and then it falls down the week later. Yep, and it fell down the week later against Wales. Now, all right, they were very close to doing it, but until they get to a point where they can knock over big teams and go, ah, brilliant, they won. On to the next one, and they're never going right. to move This forward. is the opportunity, isn't it? With fight, you know, so and so. Uh, even even with it being France, so okay, I don't know whether I'll get slated for that. Ireland, uh, Italy. You spoke to Andy Farrell after their defeat to France. Um, he's coming for some criticism for selections from the Irish media. Um, justified or not? No, I don't think. I don't think uh, he's very justified around the selection. I mean, they lost four players. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of them, which was a daft red card, which was the, the reddest of red cards. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. But you know, you have to be able to look at look at France this weekend. They have to be able to perform with what they've got. Ireland had to perform with what they had, and I think you know Andy Farrell was 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 pretty honest when I interviewed him. He said, "Look, the boys are hurting in there. That was an opportunity they missed. He reckons six or seven more opportunities to score." Um, and you know they they at times beat the French up, yeah. and I think that's something that they really need to sort of say right. These are the positives from that game because yeah. they're taking it to a, a, a form side in world rugby right now. Yeah. Uh, I, well, I do uh, I think the Irish set piece uh, for the last years he struggles a little bit. He's gone off one, you know, when it's the calling or timing or whatever. Um, they seems to study that a bit. I would think that he would because he's very astute. Um, the attack coach, Mike Katz, coming for a bit of stick. Um, should it be more potent given the players they've got? I think so. But then you have to say, well, uh, players like Conor Murray, Johnny Sexton, they are so central to how that Irish team has performed over yeah. the past few years. How much influence can Mike Cat have on a side to come and make changes? Who knows? But you look at someone like, on the flip side of that, Felipe Contopomi, when he came into the Leinster team, I mean, their, their attack play went up a different, yeah. a different gear. Um, I think that's a, really, that's a really good point. Because with England and other teams, you can't underestimate what one or two really key players bring. It's not until you don't you, 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 their absence. And you think, well, why isn't this clicking? And then it does. And and people think it can't be that. But sometimes it is. Yeah, and I think, look, and, th- and this isn't this isn't sort of b- being negative about any players at all. If you get players like Johnny Sexton, like Owen Farrell, like Johnny Wilkinson, through my experience, they have such an amazing knowledge of the game that even coaches at times are like, well, if they're saying it and they, they feel like that, then that must be the way to do it. Well, let's talk about the Lions tour. 
God knows what is going on. But someone who might be able to help us is Gavin Mayers, the chief rugby correspondent for Telegraph. You've been covering this and the speculation. Could it be here? Could it be South Africa? Whatever. Back in contention for Australia. We've given a lukewarm reception a few weeks ago, but you've written that it's still very much a possibility. Yeah, Brian, it's, um, I had a good chat with Hamish McLennan, uh, who's the chairman of the Rugby Australia. And um, I really wanted to follow up to see just how genuine their offer was. Um, I think the initial perception was it was a little bit of a PR stunt um, that they're ho- hoping to bid for the 2027 World Cup. It looked like the right thing to do and say. Speaking to Hamish, however, you realise that they are deadly serious about this. Oh, and they're supposed to be playing a test series against France. They are, and that's one of the reasons why they're, they're already in preparations to host an international side. And I think they feel that um, the experience that they had in the Tri-Nations last year and the ability, I think the key thing, Brian, is the ability to have a stadiums full of supporters, big expat communities, both from, from British and Irish supporters and South African supporters, that I think Australia feel they can offer um, the closest thing we're going to get to a proper Lions tour. I mean, I presume these things are worked out contractually, aren't they? Must be. The, Fre- the French tour will happen. It will go ahead, whatever happens, Brian. But this is this is about basing South Africa and the Lions in Australia in, in two hubs. They can train. They'll play against each other. They will play against their... I mean, the Australians say they're very flexible on the fixture list. So they would look to say... Could you play a couple of Super Rugby teams? Could you play a Wallabies A side, maybe? Maybe even if it fits the schedule, play against the Wallabies. Well, you don't want just test matches, do you? That's not a Lions tour at all. And how does that work logistically, Gavin? Does that, does that, with regards to the teams going into Australia, you know, we've seen what's happened with the Australian Open um, with the tennis. How, did they explain a bit more about that? A little bit, Tom. Yeah, so I think what they did with Argentina, for example, before Christmas... Uh, there will still be a two-week quarantine period, but they gave them a basically a hotel to themselves, a, a training facility. So, in effect, they had a two-week camp, uh, training camp. And as we saw, and as Hamish McLennan pointed out to me, their first game, they beat the All Blacks. So it hardly had a, a sort of negative effect on their performance level. So I think they think um, sort of imaginatively around this to say, look, if you come, we'll give you a hotel, you're in a bubble, you're in your own training bubble. And it w- it would again mean coming out a week earlier or or foregoing one of the eight games to fit that into the schedule. But you know, if if they yeah. do this, is it just a simple case of swapping Australia for South Africa, you know, next time or not? I don't think so. I think the, the Aussies are desperate to have the Lions again in four years time. That's gonna go down well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think the thing is, guys, it's, I mean, the Lions board are facing a horrific decision of what to do. And I think what has is, what is given this a little bit of traction is both the options of playing it in the UK and Ireland and or in South Africa, the likelihood of us having any supporters there, possibly there may be a few more allowed in the UK. But this is an option that I think some on the board are thinking, do you know what? In this extraordinary year, in these unique circumstances, we could have a backdrop of Sydney Harbour 
of the Lions, you know, once they've gone through their quarantine, and that was the other point that was made to me, once you're through the quarantine, life in Australia at the minute is almost as normal. So the players could have barbecues, go to nightclubs, go to restaurants, everything that we can't do here. Uh, so, because effectively there's zero transmission. Zero no, look, Gav, that makes, that makes a great deal of sense. I just, I just can't see, I, well, I can't see South Africa saying, oh, fine, we'll just miss ours, because you know how much it puts into the economy and their own union. So, look, yeah. I mean, are there, what are the, I mean, I've been hearing about a UAE. Um, UAE. Yeah. You can't it'd be about 110 degrees. <laughs> There's, they're definitely trying to, they're definitely trying to sort of put a pin in the map, aren't they? From a sporting perspective, that I'll would tell be. You what, unbelie- they're more They've got a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that offer was, um, yeah, probably dispatched quite quickly. But I think, as you say, Tom, it's all about them building a profile, a reputation to be able to host sporting events. Um, yeah, but is it uh, the tour itself? Is it? No one can guarantee this, but is it fairly certain to go ahead in some capacity? Right, I think I think that the risk of it not going ahead is if they decide, and this this is probably still the most likely decision in my opinion. I think the board will say we're going to South Africa as planned. Now that may well be behind closed doors, but if anything changed in the build-up at short notice where there was a new variant, then you that's where I think you may see a cancellation. Or a postponement. I think if it's held in the UK and Ireland, I think we could probably get a get a you know with this sort of the vaccine rollout and the way things are heading, you could probably say the tour, if you want to call that a tour, matches could take place in the UK and Ireland. Um, I think the only the only way we would see it cancelled is if they decide actually we're going to we're going to go ahead as planned. We're going to see what happens. If they go out there and things change for the better. I mean, people are very resilient, and they, you know they they've got more cash over here. They just you know they, you you'll be surprised how many people can get out there. Look, mm-hmm. let's come down to this. There you go. Um, Tom and Gav, if it were you making the decision, what what would your what would you like to see done? I think there just has to be a solution that's found, and I think that's that's probably you know what what Gavin's alluded to there is that. This tour has to go ahead. Some people have said, well, just postpone it a year. You can't do that. No, with, the way that you, with the way that the rugby calendar is is jam-packed with uh, with a World Cup in France in 2023, it just doesn't fit in. Um, I'm not a mad fan of, of seeing it head to, down to Australia. Um, I just, I'd love, I mean, in, in my head, it would, what a way for us to come out of this completely bonkers year and a bit uh, by having you know even if it was half full stadiums um, everyone's socially distanced everyone jabbed uh, and we're able to have a tour up here it doesn't sound like South Africa is, is the, in the in the greatest of states with regards to COVID um, but you know a solution you know has to be found what, what do you think Gavin? Tom I, I agree with your sentiment I think the only thing for me is Alliance Tour from a player's perspective, I just think it has to be a tour of sorts. And if it's possible to go ahead in South Africa, even without supporters, you know, most top-class sport at the minute is going ahead without fans. And I think if I was a 
if I was on the board, I'd want to give the players that experience of being away from home. And I just, my my one worry in the longer term is just the reputational damage to the brand of the Lions. If it was held in the UK and Ireland, it loses a little bit of mystique. And, and it, you know, I just think that that would diminish it a little bit. And I would almost rather say postpone or cancel. Well, we will see. I keep bringing Jason Leonard. Not returning my calls, but he's useless anyway, so you don't return him on, on important things. Gav, um, keep us updated and come okay. back if you've got any more news. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Bram. Thanks, Tom. Twenty twenty one marks the twenty-fifth anniversary of the King's Cross Steelers, the world's first gay rugby club, and to celebrate the anniversary, a feature length documentary entitled Steelers has been released and it's been directed by Eamon. Ashton Atkinson, a bit of a mouthful, that, who joins us now. Hello, mate. Look, um, what prompted you to make the documentary? Mate, uh, so I'm a uh, TV journalist um, by trade, and uh, I got a concussion three weeks before this tournament, and I thought, you know what, instead of just going to the sidelines and getting drunk, I'll do something productive with the week and take my camera and see what happens. And um, I started in- interviewing uh, a few of my teammates and, you know, I guess this wonderful story kind of unfolded, and so you, you played for Steelers. You remember Steelers? Yes, yeah, I was I was a member in the in the fourth team. Um, I was a uh, number eight, and uh, yeah, we the first team was sort of one of the best teams that, that the club had had in years, and I thought there was a good chance they could win this competition, so I wanted to capture it. But as the story kind of evolved, it became much more a story about how the rugby club is helping helping people, you know, overcome their struggles. Do you want to give people who are listening um, a bit of background just to the uh, Steelers' formation back in '95? Uh, yeah, sure. So, look, a couple of mates were having a drink in a gay bar in London's King's Cross in 1995, and they were watching a match on the TV, and they thought, why don't we start up our own club? Um, so they sent out uh, 120 invitations to teams around England. They got about 20 replies. A lot of the teams thought it was an April Fool's joke because it was <laughs> sent out around then. Um, but they persisted. And then, um, you know, over the course of uh, the, the sort of previous 25 years, they've kind of created this movement. There are now something like 90 gay and inclusive teams around the world. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place that's uh, kind of changing lives. Yeah. Well, I spoke at Manchester Spartans uh, dinner um, a couple of years ago, which I knew was going to be an absolute riot because <laughs> I used to live in Soho, you know, and yeah. I used to drink in the yard and, and, and whatever. And it, it was just just um, outrageous fun. Uh, it was brilliant. But just can I just clarify this? So the decision was, oh, let's do it. It wasn't no one's including us would feel alienated, therefore we'll start our own. Or was it that? Look, I think it might have been different things to different people. And and I get this question, like, if you want, you know, an inclusive society, why do you need your own gay rugby club? Um, I think it's a fair question. But I guess it's like the way, the way I try to answer it is, you know, it's about having that community. For, so for me, you know, I grew up, um, I, I loved sport when I was a young kid. You know, I played rugby when I was 12 years old. My dad took me down to the local team. But when the kids at school worked out that I was gay, sport was kind of the most masculine environment at school and that's where I copped the bullying the most, you know. So whenever I threw a ball badly, it was because I was a poofter, not because, you know, I just needed a bit more practice. So I was never given that space to kind of be able to grow into sport. And so it was this kind of 
love-hate relationship I had with it because it was where I got tormented. So I kind of gave up on sport. And then when I moved to London from Australia, um, a friend said, well, come on down to the club, check it out. And I thought, oh, it would be a good way to meet people. And I didn't realise, like, how how much this club would change my life. You know, sport has so many great impacts for mental health. It's a wonderful community. So to find this club where I could just be truly myself, I didn't have to worry about, hey, is someone going to think I'm perving on them in the showers? Or, hey, is someone going to have a problem with my sexuality? Or do I have to lie about, you know, having a husband? Just having a place where I can be 100% myself, um, you know. I don't but can I did a feature for BBC on, um, on, a, uh, on the Steelers? Uh, very early on in their incarnation. And what struck me was, you wouldn't have known they were gay, particularly, yeah. they just were players. Yeah. You know, with the same characters, same ones who, you know, were a bit shy about contact, same ones who weren't. And, you know, they told me a great story about their favourite fixture was the London Fire Brigade, who came <laughs> dressed in their uniforms and were absolutely right. But look, <laughs> the, um, the, the, I tell you, you can tell you're doing well by running four teams for start. I was going to say, how, how quickly has the club grown? Because to have four senior teams is, you know, is a, is a good effort in with, with what happened in many clubs now, you know, just being able to fill one. Totally. Look, it's, I think, you know, in a way there's some straight clubs that can take a leaf from my book because it's, it's very inclusive. So there are four senior teams and there's a development squad and there's 200 active players. So you come down on a Tuesday and Thursday night and it's a great atmosphere. The, the club room at the end of, end of the night is fantastic. And, you know, it's all about that inclusivity. So, you know, there are Kids, uh, well, there are there are guys who are coming down to the club who've never thrown a rugby ball before, and to have that environment where, hey, it's okay that you don't know about throwing the ball backwards or you don't know what a ruck is or a maul, like to come down in a non-judgmental environment and learn the game. And there was one of my mates who started in the development squad. Two years later, he was, um, you know, uh, playing in the first team. So it's, uh, yeah, it's. It, I think. They're leading by example in that respect. Yeah, I mean, is it uh, is it an open club? Can you play if you're not gay? Yes, and we have um, have a few players that that do definitely. So I think we're just you know that's the common thread that binds us together. But it's it's inclusive as well, and you know going down to the depths of Essex every week and just playing rugby and as you said, showing people that we're just like you. Um, I think that's the best kind of advocacy that we can do as a, a queer community. You know. Well, I mean, if, if anyone does consider joining who, who isn't gay, all I can say is um, there is a different atmosphere at these clubs and much more fun, much more fun, much, yeah. much more fun, much <laughs> more a bit open-minded. But I tell you, the, the Spartans chairman in his sequined Lamia um, uh, afternoon suit was, was just tremendous. Look, <laughs> this, this documentary focuses on three players. Yeah. Um, why did he choose them? Um, stylistically um, and um, um, their profile over others? Look, it, it all kind of came together as a bit of an accident. Um, Simon, uh, one of my mates, he had a real tough time with mental health. Um, he battled depression and when it came out, he was playing for a club in Birmingham and um, he, he, he had fallen in love with like a childhood best mate and this friend really rejected him when he came out. And it kind of caused him to spiral. Um, and so he was, you know, he, he talks about it in the film, he was struggling to, he was calling in sick to work, struggling to get off the floor. Um, and it was the rugby club, the King's Cross Steelers, that got him out of the house 
and and got him on that road to recovery. So he's got an amazing story. Uh, the second character is Drew, who's this uh, American um, front rower, a very uh, big burly guy, but uh, you'll see he's also a drag queen uh, by night. So <laughs> He, uh, you know, he can wear the stilettos and he can jump into a splits. And he talked about identity and, and how you can be like a fierce player on the pitch, but you can also be a fierce performer and, and whoever you want to be. It's just about being authentic to yourself. And then the final person um, is Nick, the female coach. And she was a bit of a surprise to me because I didn't set out to make a film about a gay men's rugby club and, and have a, a gay woman um, as one of the main characters. But She's kind of the heart and soul of the team and um, she talks about the kind of misogyny she faces as a woman's uh, as a woman in rugby and how she's constantly overlooked and even though she's this incredible you know level four referee, she is constantly mistaken for the physio or the water girl um, and you know the referee won't talk to her so she kind of shares her own struggles so um, you know I'd, I'd encourage people it's, it's playing in the Glasgow Film Festival uh, this coming week and you know, it's a film, I think, for anyone who has, like, struggled and it's a story about how community can help that. So, um, yeah, I hope, you know, I hope it sees just a broader audience. Well, I'd like to, um, I've seen a trailer thing, I'd like to endorse that. It will be a fascinating, different view on rugby, but I think what most people, if they're rugby fans, will take away, this is just one facet of it. It is still rugby in the same way that, you know, people love different people, they do the same sort of characters. How can people access it? Uh, so uh, Glasgow Film Festival, you can go online and the great thing is it's virtual. So um, this year, anyone can watch it across the UK. Um, yeah, and, and, and I also sort of share my own story in, it, in the end um, about my own struggles with mental health and, and how rugby really helped me. So, you know, it's kind of funny when I when my dad took me down to play rugby as a 12-year-old, I never thought that later on in life that would be the thing that kind of saved me from depression and and made me find a husband actually and uh yeah changed my life so well, there you go i mean it happens uh with the exact parallels with straight people that's that's brilliant so eamon best of luck with all this thank you eamon ashton atkinson director of the king's cross steelers catch that uh documentary film i promise you you only need to be a rugby fan that's all you need Let's give our congratulations to Dan Carter. Retirement was announced this week. One of the best that's ever played, isn't there? No, no, no argument. Unbelievable. Uh, a player that, I mean, a pretty slight fly half, but wait, he didn't half take it to the line. <laughs> Put his body well, on the, the line. This is the point when you talk about Smith and all these players. You know, Carter is, he's, you know, Carter. He wasn't a tackler. He just did enough. Get somebody to do. Um, he wasn't <laughs> too big, but um, just sublime. Yeah, unbelievable talent. And, you know, fair, came out of retirement, probably gone back to the safety of retirement, realising <laughs> how much the physicality's gone up. OK, a question from Dave. Super Rugby, Australia filing a new law that lets red-carded players be replaced by a substitute, if available, after 20 minutes, and they say it stops games being ruined. Um, my thought, I don't agree with that. If you go, you go. Yeah, I, I fully agree. I, the one, the one caveat I'd have to that is that at the moment there is, we've seen how many red cards, and I know, I know, in our little notes, Brian, we'll probably come onto this in a bit. We've seen how many red cards there've been this weekend, and this is the learning process. So, do we, do we introduce something in the short term? You probably can't do it. So, I think, I think you and I both agree on that. That if you're a red, it's a red. It's a red. 
Is it time, Paul says, to stop attacking players, ducking down and diving or driving headfirst into contact? Well, you, you can't look, you can't prescribe what players do when they go into contact. And it's a legitimate tactic. You do bend anyway because you've got to brace yourself. And I don't when pay, when he when he, he alludes to, I think he's hinting at players doing it deliberately so you get people no one does it at an, an unrealistic level because you can't get the drive, can you? There's, a, there's an optimum bend to get the power into contact. I would also say if you run upright in professional rugby, you'll soon find yourself hitting the ground shoulders first. Yeah. Uh, that's a very, very, that's a, that's completely the other end of the scale. So I'm sorry, I, I don't agree that they, they, they do that on purpose. Chris, is it possible to reach a point where risk to players' welfare reduce to an acceptable level without changing the very nature of the game? Uh, to the point where it's no longer the physical battle we all play and watch. Um, this is a rugby going soft argument. Rugby has never been soft, and it's, it's it's hard, and it always will be hard. Um, you look, there's no, there's no, there's not even a point in really arguing. You've got to do everything that is reasonably in your power to make the game safe. That's a legal obligation, and within that, there's going to be enough risk. So I, I, I'm, I just don't, you know, I, I don't accept the premise that we're going to get to that point. Same players to go a bit low and they tackle means you can still whack people. Um, you can still drive into more rooks and malls if you bind on people and don't launch yourself from 10 metres without using your arms. It's it, it, bloody simple. I, uh. Chris, I, th- I think to answer your point from my perspective, it's a technical responsibility as well. Yep. You're a professional player. You have enough time to improve your technique to a point whereby, whereby your body becomes uh, able to react to different situations and put in um, convincing tackles. I mean, let, let's just get the, the, the thing about the red cards. Players entering rooks do so on the terms they decide to do. You don't suddenly find yourself running into a rook like when someone steps inside you and you might wash your arm, you know, clothesline them because you've been wrong-footed. You choose to, whether you, first of all, you choose whether you go in or not. So you're always, well, you know, everyone's told, do you go in, don't you go in, can you win the ball? Is it, you know, free spot? So they, they know, they make the decisions. And they are absolutely in control of what they do. They know what they're doing. Now, this weekend's premiership was riddled with red cards. Let's just rewind a week. And uh, to, to, to reinforce your point, Xander Fagerson has taken a 12-meter run-up to hit a ruck, and that, which people are saying, oh, it's mitigated circumstances that, the, that he's being lifted from. But he's just run up from, he's 120 kilos. And he's, you know, he's put himself into a situation. You have to be, there was no control. Rugby is a game of control that has power built in behind it. Yeah, technique and control is is central to it all. And I think See, let, let me of... just explain this as a, as a forward. You can enter a rook, still on your feet, driving, driving through. You don't have to dive. It's a bad technique anyway because you don't know. You set off, and you don't know what the picture is going to be in the split second you hit. If you're on your feet and driving, you have a little bit of a chance. And the, the point about using your arms, it is very simple. Use your arms. At least you might get some benefit of the doubt. Do, do you know what I've been really surprised about is the amount of, uh, the amount of bent arms that with, with no extension at all in terms of these red cards. You know, the, it all, all, all started from the Peter Armani red, didn't it, way back? Yeah. And then I've, I think we've seen another two this weekend which are from bent arms. And, it, I mean, just go in with your arms. You with your arms wide, you stand a better. If you get it wrong, you stand a better chance to stay on the pitch. And it's still effective. You can still 
you know, from a, a cynical point, you can still whack people with your shoulder first. I mean, if you want to cynical about yeah. it, disguise, I'm not saying disguise it on purpose, but but it, 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 and it's like this. It's it's for the right reasons for safety. World rugby made it very plain. We don't want it. Stop doing it. Yep. End of. <laughs> and 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 by the way, just a final point: players are signing, um, you know, petitions to World Rugby about player safety, all that sort of stuff. If they want the game to be safe, they're playing it. Yeah. I keep saying to them, I don't care what you do, in a sense. I'll still have something to write about or comment about. You can go and chin each other if you like it all the time. It's not <laughs> my career. It's your career. Yeah. You all have yeah. an individual and collective responsibility. Might be you next time. Well, some of the things it. some of the things I've seen, including this sort of croc roll that we've seen to, you know, have yeah. devastating effects on on on, on Willis uh, last weekend. Some of the things like that need to be wiped from this game. Yeah. And and the sooner we get a grip of that, and, and I think World Rugby is doing exactly the right thing in terms of pre- um, not protecting the game. It's, it's protecting the players. It's, it's, it's improving the safety of the game so that we don't get these ridiculous articles that say you can only tackle when you're 18 years old because that's just yeah. completely yeah. beyond the realms yeah. of possibility. Um, yeah. The game is inherently safe. We, we look after our players and, you know, I, for one, don't have any problem with, you know, my son going down to Richmond under 10s and under 11s and playing down there because I know that he's in safe hands. Well, that's all we have time for this week on Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. Huge thank you to my co-host Tom May and to my guests, Gavin Mayers and Eamon Ashton Atkinson. I do recommend that you check out Eamon's documentary, Steelers. There'll be a link provided in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe and check out some of the previous ones? And you can stay up to date on all things sport if you head to Telegraph via telegraph.co.uk forward slash contact, where you can get 30 days access to all the Telegraph's premium sports coverage absolutely free. Uh, when we come back next time, we will see who is still on course for the Six Nations title. I bet there's some surprises. Let's hope so. Bye-bye. 